Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus no matter what you're going through today. This is my Easter message for this year, and it may be one of the most important messages I've ever preached. You see, our culture is trying to take down Christianity, and Christianity has always been a target for the culture, yet it endures. Why? Because there is one silver bullet that can take it out, and nobody has been able to use it yet. Let's talk about what that silver bullet is and how you really could take out Christianity. Hey, just a heads up, I am re-recording this message at a later date in my office. Yeah, we had Easter on the football field and we had all sorts of technical glitches and the recording, well, it just didn't happen. So I felt this message was important enough to get out there. And so I'm re-recording it now for you to use later. I hope it's okay. Uh, thanks for being patient with me. So I saw this meme on social media this past week. You've probably seen it also. If you haven't seen this particular one, I'm sure you've seen others very similar. This one is a drawing of the Sphinx in Egypt. And the caption says, if the Jews had been living in Egypt for centuries as slaves, surely they would have noticed the pyramids and the Sphinx. Strangely, neither of these great architectural wonders of the world are mentioned even once in the Old Testament. Yeah, I'm sure you've seen this one or several other ones like it. It's just another meme, another soundbite attempt to discredit the Bible and to undermine your faith. The goal is to take down Christianity. I saw this and I had a pretty simple reaction. Here it is. That's the argument you're going with? You want to cast doubt on the world's largest belief system, a 2,000-year-old faith that millions of people hold today, and that's the argument you're going with? <laughs> there are so many easy, obvious ways to attack the validity of Scripture. Dude, there's a talking snake on page 3. There's a talking donkey in the book of Numbers. There's a worldwide flood which one family alone survives with somehow all of the animals on the earth. And after the garden, God, the creator of the universe, makes his very first appearance in a random bush in the desert to a lonely shepherd. There's tons of other stuff too. Seas parting, sun standing still, plagues, bones coming to life. And that's just some of the material for you in the Old Testament. You got all this great stuff to punch holes in our faith with, and you're going with silence on the pyramids? Look, the argument from silence is always the weakest argument in any debate. Usually, it's considered a logical fallacy. Just because a thing isn't mentioned does not mean it isn't there or that they didn't know about it. Remember, the Bible is not a geography book, and it's not a story about Egyptians or their accomplishments. This is a story about a family, a people held in slavery, a people oppressed by an oppressor, needing miraculous rescue to become who they are meant to be. The simple fact is that Moses, the author of the Exodus story, did not need to include references to these landmarks to tell his story. The argument from silence is just a weak argument. 
But seriously, if you're going to discredit the Bible and take down Christianity, there's so much good material for you to use. The Bible is full of some crazy stuff. Lots of it, frankly, is hard to believe. And lots of it goes against logic and defies explanation. Yet, Christianity endures. Why is this? Is it because Christians are just gullible people willing to believe anything because they're stupid? <laughs> no, some of the smartest people you and I know are Christians. So how can Christianity endure despite some of this crazy stuff in the Bible? Well, <laughs> there's a secret. There's a secret, and I'm going to tell you the secret right now. Are you ready? Here it is. None of that seemingly crazy stuff is essential to my faith. Yeah, let me be clear. I'm a conservative, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian. I believe every word of the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, but I've been a Christian since the 1980s, and I promise you, my faith is not based on talking snakes, plagues, or dry bones, or even angels and demons. So if you want to discredit my faith, if you want to take down Christianity, you're going about it all wrong because that plot hole of not mentioning the Sphinx, that won't kill it. But there is something that can. Yeah, there's something that is there and plain to see that's sort of the silver bullet that could take down Christianity in one shot. And here's the shocking thing. We Christians are willing to admit it. Yeah, in a move that might seem to be brash over confidence, the Apostle Paul does something absolutely unique to all world religions. All world religion authors know their vulnerable spots, right? Most of them will write and teach and guide you away from them. They'll distract you. Don't think about those vulnerable spots, but not the Apostle Paul. Paul is really clear and upfront with us. He's honest that there is one thing that's like the nuclear bomb. If you want to blow up Christianity, Paul the apostle himself points out exactly how to do it. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is one of his earlier letters. He's writing to a group of people not too different than you and me. These weren't a bunch of Bronze Age desert shepherds. They were sophisticated cosmopolitan people in an important Roman city on the plains of Greece. They had heard the good news of the death and the resurrection of Jesus from Paul himself when he traveled there on his second missionary journey. But by the writing of this letter, they had heard a bunch of confusing messaging about the cross and the resurrection. Yeah, they had heard some doubt-casting memes, more or less, and they were doubting that the resurrection was all even true. And here's what Paul writes to this church at Corinth. He says this, he points right at the silver bullet, and he says, if Christ has not been raised then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the dead. In verse 17, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are to be more pitied than anyone in the world. Paul is pointing right at the big vulnerability. He's saying that if the resurrection is true, then none of it is. 
If the resurrection isn't true, then my faith is worthless. So my faith is not based on talking snakes or on the Sphinx, but on a holy, sovereign God creating everything, making it exactly the way he wanted. It all pointed to him, especially his favorite part of all creation, the best part, and that's us. He made us in his image and put us here to represent him to the world. He said, Subdue everything, bring it under your authority, because when it comes under your authority, it's coming under my authority. And all of this pleased God to no end until we decided to rebel. We decided to rebel against him and commit treason against the king. We did not want to bring everything under God's authority. We wanted to bring it under our own. We thought we could make a better God than him. And so we rebelled against him. We sinned. And the wages of sin is death. God destroys everything that he is not pleased with. And so he's going to destroy all sinners and all of everything at the end of all of time. And that's what's going to happen for all of us. We all have it coming. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Yeah, Jesus came here and he went to the cross and on the cross, he took all of the blame for my sin. He stepped in and he took the punishment that I deserved, that you deserved, and he died. The wages of sin is death. He died on that cross for my sins, paying them off in full. God exhausted all of his anger at my sin into the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus paid for it. He's dead. He was buried. But then on the third day, he rose from the dead. And now he enters my life with new life to give me this beautiful, abundant new gift from God, this eternal life. And this is the thing that my faith is based on. It's this event, the cross and the resurrection, that makes my faith possible, makes my life possible. It's the most important thing about me is that Jesus died for my sins and rose again. So Paul is writing about this to this group of Corinthian Christians. These people were asking some of the same questions that are asked today. They doubted the resurrection. They were saying, how could this really happen? Surely this Jesus figure has really evolved into some sort of myth, some sort of legend, right? Because I'm sure he existed. I'm sure he had good teaching, but a dead man cannot rise from the dead, right? And so Paul is writing to answer their questions. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he's writing to them just like he would be writing to you today. He says, I passed on to you what was most important and had also been passed on to me, that Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. So first of all, Paul is passing on this creedal statement that Christ died for our sins as the scripture said he was buried and raised from the dead on the third day just as the scripture said it was a creedal statement it it came along before Saul was even converted 
<laughs> so this is a creedal statement that dates back to within just a couple of years of Jesus's death and resurrection. So he, he passes on this creedal statement, and then look what he does next. What he does next is really amazing. Verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says that Jesus was seen by Peter and then by the 12. Yeah, Paul starts naming names. He starts naming eyewitnesses who can give their own testimony. See, he's not writing this in a vacuum. He's pointing his readers to other people that they can go and verify the story. Let them share their story with you and they'll sing the same song that I'm singing, he's saying. So he starts naming the names of eyewitnesses. In verse six, he says, after that, Jesus was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Here, Paul is saying, check my sources on this. I know you have doubts. I know you are not sure what to believe. But at that time, most of these people were still alive and they had seen him with their own eyes. He's saying, you can easily investigate my claims. This isn't just me talking. There are hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. <laughs> he says this in verse 7, then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Yeah, more names that you can go and talk to. In verse 8, he says, Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. But whatever I am now, it's all because God poured out his special favor on me and not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I, but God, who was working through me by his grace. You see, I think, I think that Paul's story alone ought to be convincing enough for just about anybody to believe that the resurrection happened. Because before Paul was Paul, he was Saul, right? He was one of the highest, most educated, most trained Pharisees that there was, and everything in him informed him that Jesus was his enemy, and Saul's objective was to destroy this new Christian movement. Saul had risen to the top of his field. Everybody looked up to him and respected him. You can see his resume clearly in the scripture and you can see what he achieved in his life and how well he was thought of and respected. It was Saul that presided over the first Christian martyr. When Stephen was stoned, it was Saul that oversaw this and he had gotten authority to go travel from town to town and to take out Christians and accuse them, imprison them, torture them, and even kill them. And this is what Saul was up to. But he met Jesus on the road. He had a radical encounter with Jesus Christ personally, and it changed him forever. And he gave his life to proclaiming the message of Christ around the world, wherever he went to whoever would listen. And so then he says this in verse 11, he says, so it makes no difference whether I preach or they preach. 
for we all preach the same message that you have already believed. He's saying that no matter who you listen to that has seen him, our stories all match up. Hundreds of witnesses and our stories will all line up. We're all saying the same thing. We're all singing the same song. And here's an even more amazing thing. The apostles would go on to spend the rest of their lives saying the same thing. Even though they were tortured and beaten and imprisoned, they continued to preach the same gospel. None of them broke. This is what convinced Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was an attorney and a political advisor to President Richard Nixon. He became known as Nixon's hatchet man. He was cold and ruthless. When the infamous Watergate scandal hit, Colson was named one of the Watergate Seven. He was tried and convicted, and he went to federal prison. But in 1973, Colson became convinced that the resurrection was not simply a fairy tale, but it was the most important fact he could base his life on. Here's the quote from Chuck Colson. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured it if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. <laughs> Chuck Colson went on to start a ministry called Prison Fellowship, which has become the world's largest Christian nonprofit organization for prisoners, former prisoners, and their families, as well as a leading advocate group for justice reform. The resurrection resurrected Chuck Colson, changing him from federal prisoner to founder and leader of a national Christian ministry, changing lives. Yeah, the government has been trying to obscure and deny the resurrection of Jesus from the very beginning. The government bribed the soldiers, the very soldiers who had guarded the tomb to say that the body was stolen. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. They couldn't produce the body. So the church endured. Those early Christians in the first century, they had their property seized, their possessions burned, and, and they had their family members tortured if they didn't renounce their faith. Christians were hunted down and killed. Some were used as human torches. Others were thrown to lions, but they never produced the body. So the church endured. By the 7th century, the rise of Islamic rule meant Christians were severely restricted. They had no rights. They were treated harshly. They were viewed as inferior to Muslims, and they paid much higher taxes. But they could never produce the body, so the church endured. By the 1790s, there was mass persecution of Christians in France. The French Revolution made it even worse, a mass campaign against the Christians leading us to the reign of terror. Churches and Christian monuments and symbols were destroyed, and even religious education was forbidden as part of the reign of terror, but they never produced the body, so the church endured. Today, Christians are being persecuted in China, in Egypt, and in Korea right now. 
In China alone, an estimated 96 million people, around 7% of the population, claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Even though they endure beatings, even though their bank accounts are shut down, even though their neighbors are paid off to turn them in, even though they burn churches and tear down Christians' houses, they can't produce the body. So the church continues to endure. So the simple fact of the matter is, if you want to take down Christianity, all you got to do is produce the body. Produce the body. And the truth is, you can't. If the resurrection isn't true, then our faith is a lie. So my question for you is, how will you respond to the resurrection? Maybe you've been living as if it were all just a fairy tale, a myth. Or maybe you believe but it hasn't affected your life in any discernible way. For Paul, he made the faith decision to believe and to trust, and it changed everything about him. Because that's what the resurrection does. When the resurrected Jesus enters your life, he throws out the old and makes everything new. He resurrects you. He resurrected Paul. He resurrected Chuck Colson, and he wants to resurrect you. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, In fact, if Christ has been raised from the dead, he is the first of a great harvest of all who died. In other words, he's just the first and you could be next. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So that's what he wants for you. He wants you to turn from your old life and turn to his new life. The Apostle Peter writes, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by His great mercy that we have been born again. Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, now we live with great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. Yet we have something wondrous in store for us. My great hope for you is that you would stop trying to take down Christianity and instead that you would surrender your life to Christ, just like Chuck Colson did, just like the Apostle Peter did, just like Saul, who became Paul, did. Give your life to Jesus. Let the resurrected one resurrect you. Let me lead you in a simple prayer of repentance and faith, turning from your old life and turning to him. Would you pray this prayer with me? It goes like this. Dear Heavenly Father, I realize I'm a sinner. I've broken your heart by breaking your law. And I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you for loving me, even though I've been unlovable. Thank you for sending your son to die in my place. As best as I know how, I give up. I surrender. I just want to be yours, but I don't really know how. As best as I can, I'm giving myself to you. I know I need to change, 
but I can't. So I need you to come into my life and change me. Make me new. I'm yours, Lord, from this day forward. I'm never going back, and I know I'll never be the same. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's what I'd like you to do next. If you prayed that prayer with me, would you please let us know at the Orchard Church? Just send us an email at hello at orchard. Just send us an email at hello at orchardellajay.com. Orchardellajay, E-L-L-I-J-A-Y.com. Let us know that you surrendered your life to Christ as a result of this podcast episode so that we can be supporting you by praying for you by name. We want to get you some resources to help you start your journey and to walk with Christ so that you can experience the resurrected life that he designed for you to have. Thank you. God bless you. And I hope that you experience his abundance in your life. Thank you.